0: Please continue standing for the reading of God's Word. Our scripture today comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's say amen
1: together, church. Amen. Maybe may be seated. Thank you, Pastor Tony. Hello, everyone. I'm Adam. I am one of the members of Verse by Verse Fellowship. I'm also one of your deacons. And it's my pleasure tonight to go with you through the first few verses here of 1 John chapter 2. The um, message for tonight is titled First Things First, and I know it's chapter two, so that may not make sense, but if you bear with me, if you bear with me, it'll make sense. So when I was in junior high, our shop teacher opened his classroom every other week during lunchroom, so a few of us nerds can go in and play chess. Uh, so we skipped lunch, went to the shop, and we kind of paired off. Uh, it got popular after a while, and the home room was filled with all these kids playing chess. Mayor the shop teacher was brilliant. He'd been playing chess his whole life, and he'd go around and watch us play, and after a while, he realized something very important. We were all terrible at playing chess. So one week, he dusted off his chalkboard, and he taught us the basics. You know, he went over each piece, its function, how they moved, and what advantage it provided In the game. We all attentively listened and figured out what he was talking about. And then afterwards, we went back to playing and he would kind of watch us and give us guidance as we played. Now, today I'm not a grand master of chess or anything like that, but I was able to learn and improve thanks to my teacher. As I said, my message tonight is called First Things First. If we want to know how to live in this world as Christians, there's a few things we need to get right first. And in this passage of 1 John, we're going to look at three keys that John is teaching us about how we are to walk as Christians. And like that old shop teacher who taught me chess, we're going to discover how this actually happens. So if you open your Bibles tonight and you're on 1 John chapter 2, the very first thing John says in this chapter is, my little children, He's actually going to use this phrase several more times in the book. Now, before we move on to the rest of the text, I wanted to take a moment and focus on this simple phrase. At this point, John is an older apostle. Uh, he's talking to, of course, a, probably a newer generation of Christians. But he's not talking about his age here. Uh, after all, he's probably writing to mostly adults, um, what he's doing, of course, is he's setting the tone uh, and revealing to his audience the kind of heart he has towards them. As an apostle who knew Jesus, who saw him in his resurrected glory, as an apostle with power and authority, he could have come to them and shouted down at them as some kind of you know, tyrant, listen to me, I'm the apostle. Instead, he doesn't do anything like that. And he appeals to them, A church facing all sorts of problems, persecutions, and headwinds, as a loving father would to his children. Paul also did this quite often in his letters. Now, we need to remember this as we move through the text. We're going to look at some passages of scripture that can feel very harsh at times if not looked at properly. Uh, We might uh, kind of get in our heads and feel a little stressed out, but we need to remember. John is speaking the way a loving father would speak to his children, comforting them even as he's telling them very important things. And this also reminds us of who is really speaking through John. Of course, the apostle, we know, is writing this letter, but it's our heavenly Father by his Holy Spirit that is doing the actual speaking. God does not want us to see ourselves as his subjects forced to carry out his whims out of fear, We are his little children whom he lovingly cares for each and every day. Now, some of us might have a hard time of thinking of God in this way because your earthly father may not have been as loving and nurturing as he should have been or supportive. Perhaps there's people here who keep God at arm's length because they struggle uh, receiving him as their father. But no matter whether or not you had a good dad or a not-so-great dad, God is the Father who is never going to let you down. And John is using this affectionate language early on to remind us of this. And as we move through the text, we need to keep this in mind. He goes on to write, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. John, speaking like a caring father to God's children, is telling us he's writing this letter so that you may not sin. This is actually good news, although it might not sound like it at first. Previously, John told us that when we confess our sins, he's faithful, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But some cynics in the audience... Might twist that into thinking we have now a blank check to do whatever we want. And as Pastor Tony's explained in previous uh, classes, that there were false teachers spreading different lies to justify this kind of sinful living. So John puts to bed that false view right away, verse 1, chapter 2, saying the goal of his letter is to encourage us, followers of Christ, not to sin. Now, I know I don't have to agonize over this point, but it's worth settling this question right now. If God is forgiving us no matter what we do, then why is the Bible telling us to abstain from sin? Well, even for a Christian, we need to remember the wages of sin are death. Sin destroys everything it touches. Those who know Jesus Christ are forgiven, amen, but that doesn't mean sinful actions won't have consequences in the here and now. And if we think about it, if Jesus came to give us life, and life more abundantly, a part of that life is freedom from the shackles and bondages of sin from our old life. Christ came to set us free from sin, and there is no trustworthy pastor or teacher who will ever teach anything that encourages sin. Remember that. But here's the great news. John isn't expecting us to be sinless through our own merit or power. In fact, just the opposite. This is the first key uh, in our study tonight. In living the way Christ wants you to live, you can write this down. The first thing is you must know that Christ has taken away our sin. Notice in uh, these first two verses, John immediately writes, he says, I'm writing to you so you don't sin, but if anyone does sin, and that word but in the Greek can also mean and or also, so John already knows you're going to mess up and he gives us the solution. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So what does this word advocate mean? Well, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, Jesus uses the same word to describe the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, it's parakletos, which means someone called to come come alongside us. And Vine's Dictionary of the Bible explains it this way. This word was used in a court of justice the denote a legal assistant, counsel for the defense, an advocate, then generally one who pleads another's cause, an an intercessor, an advocate. So here John is describing our salvation, our relationship with God in terms of a court case. This is very common in the Bible to use this judicial language to describe our state before God. God the Father is the judge, our sins are like our crimes done against him. And we were guilty, deserving a death penalty. But we have an ace in the hole. Our advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous. But why does John call him the righteous? We don't have a fallen human being advocating for us. We don't have Moses or David, as impressive as that may sound. In reality, they can't advocate for us because they have their own sins to deal with. Even in our earthly legal system, you can't have someone convicted of a crime advocating for you. They, they have their own problems to deal with. And we don't have someone like Gabriel or Michael advocating for us. As impressive as having an angel on our side, angels aren't humans. They don't understand what we're going through. They can't sympathize with us the same way. Our advocate with the Father is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became a man, who lived through human eyes, knows exactly what we're going through. And not only that, he's sinless. He's the righteous one. In fact, he's the most precious one in the eyes of the Father. Because when you need help the most, you want the very best. So this year, for our taxes, my wife and I decided to hire a CPA. Before I was married, I used to find my taxes online because I thought it was so smart I could figure it out myself. Yeah, big big surprise, it didn't go well. And one year for our, after we got married, we went to one of these chain places where they you know, advertise to do your taxes. And I assumed they would know what they're doing and find us the deductions. Unfortunately, there was just a person on a, by a computer just clicking through a prompt and didn't really help us. So finally, we said, let's just pay someone who knows what they're doing to help us out. And so I, we found this person. He was really good, really expensive. But when tax day came, we learned the good news. Not only did we not owe anything, we were making overpayments all this time. And he applied those overpayments so that we get to pay less. Hallelujah because it pays to have the very best working on your behalf. And in the situation that's far more important than taxes, we don't have an angel or prophet interceding for us. A good man didn't die on the cross, but a perfect man, the righteous one, Jesus, the Holy One of God. No one else could do better. And because we have the righteous one as our advocate, John says this about Jesus. He is the propitiation for our sins. Not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. All right, sounds good. But what does propitiation mean? Well, it's not a word we use all the time, uh, but it's worth describing. It was more common during the times of kings and emperors. Uh, Justice back then was meted out by a king. He established the laws, and when you broke a law it was essentially you were violating the authority of the king. You know, kings had a responsibility to oversee their kingdom and protect the people, which is why they passed laws, at least good kings. So when you broke a law, it was like you were offending the king himself. So you were brought before the king or one of his officers, and you had to appease his anger. It wasn't just like you broke the law and there's a judge there just smacks his gavel. You offended a person, and you had to do something so that he was no longer angry with you. Now, some kings may have wanted you to grovel at their feet. Oh, please, 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 please. And then they felt satisfied. But a just king would require some kind of punishment that would satisfy his anger based on what you did, and then you were able to go free. But here we're talking about the king of the universe. This is not just an earthly king, but God himself. And there's no punishment or payment that we could make that would appease his anger against us, and then we just go free. Because our sins, which were many, require our death, our eternal death. The reality is, if you were to see a, a book with all the wrongs that you've done, it'd be much thicker and much longer than you really realize. If you ever see pictures of, like, Santa Claus, and he has that list of all the naughty and nice kids, and it kind of trails down? That was the list of your sins, okay? It was that bad. From the moment you were born till the day you die, it was this overwhelming weight of guilt against you. Paul even called it the handwriting of charges against you, evoking the law. So, no amount of good works could ever scrub away that list. Didn't matter if you started today to the next hundred years, you're never going to wipe that out. But Jesus Christ, through his shed blood, has wiped that list clean. If you were to look at that list today, if you put your faith in Christ, it is blank because he's washed away your sins. But notice how John puts it here. Okay, this is the key to this first point. He doesn't say, Jesus provided propitiation, past tense. Do you notice that in your text? John writes, Jesus is our propitiation. That's not a typo. That's not a mistake. The word there is the present active tense. So what does that mean? Is Jesus still suffering? Is he still on the cross? No, the work is finished. He is alive forever. John means that Jesus is continuing to provide us help, okay? It wasn't like you were saved once and then it's over. Now you're on your own. Jesus is alive. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And even right now, he is meeting the needs of his people. See, the apostle knew we're gonna continue to stumble. Every single sincere Bible-believing Christian in this room tonight will continue to mess up. And as Christians who read and love the Bible, we know better than anyone else just how bad our actions can be. Even well-meaning, true Christians, when they stumble, feel tempted to condemn themselves. Have you ever done this, or is it just me? You know, we know what the Bible says, we want to serve God and do right, but then we keep stumbling in a certain way. And we think to ourselves, ah, I did it again, what's wrong with me, how can I do this? So what are we supposed to conclude? John is reminding us, believers, that when we fail, we are not back under God's wrath. We're not settling it back at square one having to find some new solution. Why? Because Jesus is our propitiation. He doesn't stop providing righteousness and forgiveness just because we messed up. He continues to be the one who sends us grace every day into our lives. God will never be mad at us again because Jesus is the one who is appeasing. Of course, that's not an excuse to sin, but a reason for us to get back up and keep going. The reality is, you can't expect to obey God and resist temptation today if you're still under the burden of your sins from yesterday. Knowing that God has completely forgiven you frees you from the guilt, shame, and condemnation of your sin. And that is what actually empowers you to continue to obey God. You know, there's some preachers out there that might not fully teach this, and I've heard them uh, different times in my life. They they kind of try to tamp down grace and the reality of forgiveness in Christ. They'll say things like, Yes, I love grace. I love it's great but be always careful what comes after that but because it might be something that undermines what they just said. And some people teach this because they're afraid that if they truly talk grace as the Bible teaches it, then everyone will just run out and send up a storm. The reality is grace is needed for you to overcome temptation. How else are you to obey God today if you fear his wrath, if you've messed up? Well, some of you know that I had the joy of becoming a father this year. And uh, our little Phoebe is only three months old. She just started flipping over for the first time. She's not at the stage yet of walking, but I have nieces and nephews and friends, and I've seen the process. And those of you who are parents and grandparents, you remember the process and those of you who aren't, you're, you were children, so you remember the process. Anyone here who was never a child? I don't, I don't think so. And I remember this very vividly, especially with my nieces and nephews. Uh, there comes a time where the baby's like, I'm going to learn to walk. And we all remember it. That day, the baby grabs the side of a table or a couch, and they pull themselves up, and they kind of stand there, their big head, wobble, 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 and they go, and they take that first step, and boom, they're on the ground. What happens in that moment? Well, the baby might get startled and start crying and kind of fussy and, and shocked, but how does mom or dad react? Do they go up to the child and go, I can't believe it. You tried to walk. You took one step. What's the matter with you? Does any parent do that? No. They immediately run over, pick up the baby and go, oh my goodness, he took his first step. Oh, Connie, get the camera. He's going to do it again. It's so amazing. And even though the baby might be crying and kind of scared from that first fall because mom and dad are loving him and encouraging him, he's laughing. He forgot all about the scary part of falling. And soon enough, maybe that day, maybe the next day, he's at it again. He Pulls himself up, wobble, wobble, wobble. Takes one step, two steps, falls down. Again, what do the parents do? Oh, two steps, at all you can give me? What's the matter with you? No. They grab him and say, Oh my goodness, two steps! He's taking two steps. Where's that camera? I can't believe we need it. And again and again, the parents, there's no condemnation, no punishment for a baby taking one step, two steps, three steps. Soon enough, that baby is taking three steps, four steps, and soon enough, you're not gonna be able to catch him. A few years ago, I went to visit my sister and she had twins. And at the beginning of the Christmas holiday, they were doing that. They were walking and falling over. And they had baby gates everywhere already, just in case. And then I went to visit some other family members. And two weeks later, just two weeks later, I get back, see them. And those kids are like, pew, pew, pew. We had to run to catch them. Because after just two weeks, they got so good, it was like they never fell before. And even though they might still stumble here and there, guess what? They're walking. You see, the child is free to keep going and getting up, because there's no fear of failing. Remember what Paul, uh, John said: "We're his little children. We are God's children, learning how to walk spiritually speaking, how to walk as godly people. And we could actually do this because we know God's not going to hit us over the head when we fail. He'll correct us at times and as is necessary, but he's not going to condemn us because we tried and we failed." Knowing that is what empowers us to keep going. God is not angry with us because of Jesus. If there's anyone here tonight or listening who has never put their faith in Jesus Christ, I'm telling you that you can be totally forgiven of your sins, restored to fellowship with the Father, and live a life of joy and love in the one who created you by simply asking the Lord to forgive you. Now, before we move on, I just want to make a note about propitiation, because I've heard some people get kind of confused about this. When we say that God was angry at us because of our sin, and Jesus was our propitiation, it doesn't mean that God the Father was just, ah, oh, and Jesus had to jump in and say, no, 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 don't, no, don't hurt him. Like, it was like a bar fight, like he's just trying to get between us, and God the Father was like, oh, Jesus, I can't, I can't believe it. <laughs> it was the Father's plan to send Jesus. We know this. He was the one angry with us, but he also was the one who sent the person, the Son of God, to save us. He loves us that much. It's a win-win. Okay, so what did we just learn? The first thing in living the way Christ wants us to live is to know that Jesus takes away our sins. And only after we realize we are totally forgiven can we move on to verses 3 and 4 of 1 John chapter 2. They go like this. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So, the second thing we must know about living as Christ wants us to live point number two, we keep the teachings Jesus gave to us. Now, I'll explain why that's the point that I'm making with these verses. Some might read this passage and get the wrong impression. They might think or even say, based on what John just wrote, you're not a Christian unless you keep all the commandments of the Bible. No, you are a Christian because Jesus died for you and rose again. This wasn't from you, it is the gift of God. We don't jettison that truth for any reason. John is not saying you're not a Christian unless you do this, that, or the other thing. John isn't saying that unless you obey the Bible perfectly, you're a liar. Because he just wrote that when we sin, Jesus is our advocate. He's our propitiation. The reason the Father has accepted us as his children. When we screw up, we are still forgiven. We get back up in repentance and confession and we keep on the path of faith. So what does John mean when he says we must keep his, meaning Christ's, commandments? Does he imply obedience? Well, of course. But how do we, as Bible-believing, born-again, new-covenant believers obey Christ? Or put another way, what comes first? How does a Christian learn to obey, to do good, to follow the commandments of Christ? We are taught by the Lord himself. Jesus said this in Matthew eleven twenty eight verses 30. We don't have a slide, but you can write it down. Matthew eleven twenty eight verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Remember that? It's a very famous passage from Christ. He says, Learn from me and you will find rest. And John goes on to write in 1 John 5, verse 3, a little preview that Jesus' commandments are not burdensome. So people who make and I'm just going to say this, you could disagree with me in the questions later, but people who make God a following God an agonizing labor, something that is frustrating and painful, don't know who Jesus is. Of course, there's going to be times of sacrifice. Sacrifice is a part of the Christian life, but Jesus just told us His burden is light. And those who know Jesus, this is so amazing, those hidden here who know Christ and have been walking with him for years know. That making a sacrifice for him is small in light of what they have received from him. So, long before you ask yourself, what am I supposed to do for God, which is a good question to ask, you need to learn from him. You need to learn from Jesus. This, I believe, is, is the thrust of John's uh, passage here. As we've learned, he's writing at a time when false teachers are spreading all kinds of lies about who Jesus was and what it means to be a Christian which is not unlike the world today. The lies are slightly different, but the goal is the same, to deny Christ, to deny the word of God, and to steer people away from the truth. But if you want to be fruitful, if you want to grow in faith, if you want to serve the Lord, then you must hold fast to the true teachings that God through Christ have given us and not be led astray by any false doctrine. As I said, first things first, you cannot be fruitful in God in your own power or effort. You need God's life flowing through you. You need his peace, his direction, his clarity, his joy. And these are things God is glad to give us. Do you know what, how Paul described the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is quite a topic that you could spend a lot of time teaching on and studying. But Paul called it in Romans 14, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Sounds pretty good, right? The liars that John is talking about in this passage are people who say they follow Christ but are not believing Christ's word. We know this is the case because John says the truth is not in them. So we, we surmise from that that they're liars because they don't believe or know the truth. So we could interpret that as meaning keeping Christ's commandments requires that the truth be in us. So who, by the way, are these liars? That's pretty strong language, even for someone like John. Does he mean folks who come to the church say they are believers but are struggling in some way? Maybe, maybe not. Sometimes a person does believe in Jesus, but they're new. There isn't a lot of outward change yet, but there will be in time. Other times there are Christians who are in a bad place. They know Jesus, but they've hit, you know, a snag or the skids in their life, and that sometimes leads them to make bad decisions, or they're just in a bad place. These people aren't liars either, but they need encouragement, perhaps correction by their brothers and sisters. The liars are the ones who say one thing and do another, who don't have the truth in their hearts. We might not be able to spot people like this all the time, but they are around Sometimes they're openly disobeying God, but that's not always the case. So we, as believers in Christ, need to be alert, but aware that only God really knows someone's heart. So why am I interpreting this particular passage this way? Well, it would be easy for me to come up here and read what John said and say, you see, John said, keep his commandments. Just keep them and then just leave you out to dry. But that wouldn't be any help to you. Okay, if you believe in Jesus, if you read the word, you know that you are to obey what Christ commanded you. And he commanded us some wonderful things. Love for your neighbor. Treat others as you, want, as you want to be treated. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Wash the brethren's feet. So you don't need me to tell you that, although I will again and again. What we need to know from time to time or be reminded of is how we are to keep these commandments. As Christians, we don't work to earn or keep God's approval. A person gains God's approval through faith, belief in God's word. That's what it means when we say, the righteous shall live by faith. But that doesn't mean, hey, I believe the Bible, so it doesn't matter what I do. John already said, no, we must not sin. That's the attitude that John calls being a liar. But first things first, you cannot expect to obey all that Christ has said before you let him teach you what he wants to teach you from his word. The Christian life isn't as so much backbreaking labor that you're trying to do in your own strength. It's receiving from God what he wants to impart into your life, and with that, you go on to serve him. It's a life of joy, a life of peace, a life where God is supplying all we need in Christ, So we can be empowered to do what he wants us to do. So do we see the difference? Every day our priority, so to speak, is to make sure the truth is in us. What truth? The words of Christ. Our goal when we study scripture, when we pray, when we worship, when we're in our quiet time and so forth, is to receive from Jesus, to learn from him, to see him in all his splendor and glory. And that is what will enable us to keep his commandments. And in reality, that is the commandment he gives us. Jesus says it this way in John 15, verses 7 and 8. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. You see that? If we want to bear much fruit, we must let his word abide in our hearts. Now, there might be some of you thinking here, Adam, that's too simple. There has to be something else that I must do. Well, truth is, there's a lot for God from God for you to do. It's not open. <laughs> but we don't get the cart before the horse. God's, God does not expect you to serve him in your own power. You cannot expect to obey the Bible in your own earthly strength or willpower. It's Jesus' words that are spirit and that are life. He's the one who gives us life every day so we could walk the way he wants. And that brings us to our final passage for tonight, and our final point. After urging us to keep Christ's commandments, John expounds on this more in the next two verses. So far, we learned two keys to living the way Christ wants us to live. First, we must know that Jesus takes away our sins, Second, we must keep the teachings he gave to us. And then John elaborates even more in the next passage, verses five and six. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So the final key is we walk the way Jesus walked when we live by faith. I'll say it again. We walk the way Jesus walked when we live by faith. So let me explain what I mean by that. John says here that whoever keeps Christ's word, in him the love of God is perfected. So he's only affirming what we've been talking about already. If you want God's love to abound in you, if you want his love perfected, meaning have its complete work in you, you must hold fast to Christ's word. God's love isn't perfected in us through our fleshly efforts. It's perfected in us It's not perfected in us through our own power, wisdom, or strength. It's perfected in us by God himself through his word. Now, John goes on to say that those who abide in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So uh, as a little aside, you'll notice in 1 John, he writes kind of in a roundabout way. This is very similar to James. It's It's a kind of a Jewish style of writing. See, Paul, he was writing to Gentiles for the most part, so he wrote in a very systematic kind of way that we're we're more familiar with in the West. Kind of, here's my point: one, two, three, da 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 da. But John, kind of like you know, Peter's kind of writes this way too. He kind of talks in circles. He kind of repeats himself again and again. James also does this, and it's an interesting way to communicate. It's not right or wrong. It's just different. But the advantage is that he'll say the same thing, just slightly different. But in saying it differently, he emphasizes it in a different way, and it helps us think about it in a different way, and then we learn more. And you also see this in the Proverbs and the other passages of the Bible. Because he already told us we're not supposed to sin, and he told us to keep his commandments. Now he's saying much the same way, but in a different way. And we notice here like, the cause and effect relationship. If you abide in Christ, you'll walk as he walked. So it's no big mystery for the Bible to tell us to live like Jesus lived. But how do we do it? By abiding in him first. First things first. You can't expect to walk as Jesus walked if you never met him. And there's no way you can know him if you don't let his words abide in your heart. Well, that's all well and good. But specifically, how did Jesus walk? What does that actually look like? Well, when I was a kid, some of you probably remember this, there was a trend that swept through the Christian world. People, especially teenagers, wore these bracelets with the words WWJD. Does anyone remember that? Okay, the, the letters stood for, what would Jesus do? This is a trend that w- it was everywhere, and it was inspired by the very passage we're reading tonight. Someone, probably well-meaning, eager to sell bracelets, thought that this verse meant we need to ask every time, what would Jesus do? And it was a way to try to, you know, educate teenagers before they did something bad. Would Jesus smoke that cigarette? Would Jesus drink that beer? And, you know, that that sounds good at the time, but like many Christian trends, it ended up being just an external means of kind of guilting people into behaving the right way. It didn't, can't have influence over someone's heart, just a bracelet. So eventually it kind of faded like most trends do. But is that what John's saying here every time we make a decision? Is that what Jesus would do? Would Jesus rotate his tires? Would Jesus, you know, mow the lawn? Uh, No, not exactly. He would have said that if that's what he meant. He said we need to walk in the way that Jesus walked. So how did Jesus walk? You might say to yourself, well, he didn't sin. It's about not sinning. Of course, it's a part of it. But how did Jesus do that? How do we avoid sin? And more than that, how are we supposed to conduct our lives day by day as a Christian the way Jesus did? It's a big question, and it's worth asking. But what did Jesus himself say? In John 5, verses 19 and 21, Jesus says something very, very interesting. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. And greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. This is a fascinating passage about uh, Jesus and the life of Christ. There are books about that study Christology and how Jesus lived and his nature of God and man and his atonement. Uh, but I don't know how many people kind of <clears throat> analyze this passage. It's so fascinating. Because Jesus is basically saying he didn't presume to do anything himself. He says, I do nothing of my own accord, essentially. Instead, he actually did what the Father was showing him to do. I mean, I don't even know what that looks like. I mean, we know Jesus would often get up early in the morning to pray, and he had the Holy Spirit upon him, guiding him. But did he he really have, like, visions of the Father showing him something? I don't know. But he's telling us that he never assumed. He never did things in his own logic, even though this is Jesus we're talking about, the Son of God, the Messiah, God as man. He didn't take it upon himself to make decisions. Instead, he looked to the Father who directed him. What does that look like for us? We're not going to have visions every day of God saying, go brush your teeth Adam. You don't need to do that, and that's not really helpful. I think this is meaning that we walk by faith, not by sight. See, faith isn't simply a bunch of facts in your head about God. Now, we know this. Faith means dependence on God, dependence on Christ, Faith means we are not relying on our own merit, talent, ability, or strength to get us through the day. See, that's what the world does. They rely on all those things, whether they're talented or good looking or tall or smart or have a degree, to get them through the day. But it doesn't even work. Otherwise, there'd be no such thing as happy hour. You know, sometimes happy hour is good because you go to a restaurant and you get like half-priced fajitas and it's like, yeah, fajitas. But in the most of the world, happy hour at five o'clock, they punch out and they go just destroy the rest of their evening with alcohol. Because no matter how much merit or strength or ability they have, they just can't even make it through one day. And they have to go drown their sorrows and fears and anxieties with a drug. But as Christians, we have something so much better. We don't have to rely on our talents some of us don't have any talents. That's okay, because we're not relying on our earthly merit at all. We rely on Jesus. We rely on what God is daily supplying to us. Faith means we actually rest in the knowledge that God is taking care of us. It doesn't mean we, we shirk our responsibilities. It means... No matter what our responsibilities are, some of you may be parents and and grandparents and you have businesses and ministries. Sometimes you might feel you got a lot on your shoulders. You don't let those go. It means that you're looking to the Lord to give you the strength, the direction, the wisdom to handle all these responsibilities. Because in the reality, he's got it all taken care of. We receive what he wants to supply to us every day when we feed on his word, And trust in his power. So, if you're wondering, well, how do I receive from God every day? The simple step each day is to draw from Jesus, draw from his word. Pour out your heart before him and know that he's going to supply. Now, again, this might sound too simple for some of you out there. Some of us, even as Christians, we've been kind of programmed I got to do, I got to do, I got to follow these 10 steps, I got to apply these mechanisms into my life. But you're not going to get what you need any other way. You know, I can pray for you, and you can have the elders of the church come and lay their hands on you and bless you when you're going through a problem. And that's all good, and you might be touched and blessed, but that is not how a Christian grows. And you can't have Pastor Tony come to your house every day and pray for you before you go out to work. As much as he'd love to do it, it's not going to happen. The Christian life is a day-by-day journey journey. You need what God has for you this day and this moment and tomorrow he'll have more for you. And that's how Jesus lived while he was on the earth. The Holy Spirit provides nourishment, so to speak. But he does it when we stop and prioritizing or we prioritize hearing from Jesus. Now I know I don't have to say this to a church called Verse by Verse Fellowship. You know a thing or two about the importance of the word of God. But even we in this fellowship need to be reminded of this because our human nature defaults to works. I recently saw a a quote from Tim Keller who recently passed away and he said much the same thing. The human heart is oriented towards works and we can convince ourselves without even realizing it that living for God means doing it yourself. Some of you here tonight might be worn out. You are going, going, going. You might feel like you're running out of fumes. But God is saying we need to rest and draw life from him. You know, it, that might even mean for some of you to change your schedule, cancel a few appoint, a few appointments, and spend some time alone for, with God. Recently, I, I shared with our small group uh, something about just much this uh, point about drawing from the Lord. And I told them, I knew their, their schedules were such that maybe they didn't have an opportunity to spend an hour every day in God's word. And I told them, you know what? Even five minutes is better than no minutes to pray and read the Bible because Jesus is very good at making a lot out of our little. But some of you here, maybe you need to, maybe just for a day or for a weekend, cancel everything and just spend time with the Lord. No agenda, no time limits, just you and Jesus so you get back to what fuels your soul. There was a great evangelist who lived in the 19th century named George Mueller. He was famous for building the Ashley Down Orphanage in England, which over the course of its existence helped 10,000 orphans. Now Mueller didn't have a large support base. There was no such thing as the internet where he can raise funds, no PayPal. He just trusted God for the support each day. And God did amazing things to provide for this orphanage. They would wake up with no food and they'd get knock at the door, Oh, I've got a truck full of bread. You know, do you want some? Or, or a truck full of milk broke down. Do the kids need milk? And God would do this time and again to provide for this orphanage. So what was Mueller's secret? How did he demonstrate so much confidence in God? People called him that he had a gift of faith. How did he do it? Well, it wasn't a secret. It seemed to have something to do with what he writes. Uh, this is from his own writings. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. I saw the most important thing was to give myself to the reading of God's word and to meditate on it, that thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed, and that thus by means of the word of God, while meditating on it, my heart might be brought into experimental, which means experiential communion with the Lord. God has taught me this point It is as plain to me as anything that the first thing the child of God has to do morning by morning is to obtain food for his inner man. Now what food, what is food for the inner man? Not prayer, but the word of God. And here again, not the simple reading of the word of God, so that it only passes through the minds, just as water passes through a pipe, but considering what we read, pondering over it, and applying it to our hearts. So he's not, of course, diminishing prayer. He's saying before he even wants to pray or knows what to pray, he allowed the Lord to feed him. He allowed the Lord to enrich his soul. And from that came prayer and worship, confession, anything that the Spirit was leading him to do. Jesus didn't depend on himself but the Father. He did nothing of his own accord or initiative, but by what the Father showed him and by the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. And we could do the same when we first received from him. Being a Christian is living a life of rest. Biblical rest doesn't mean you do nothing. It means you are doing what you're supposed to do, but not in your own abilities, but trusting that God is supplying the power. That is how Jesus walked, and that's how we must walk. Of course, there's so much more we could say about walking as Jesus walked, but where do we go to find out more about it? By Studying the word by learning from what he did and what he's teaching us, by drawing from him. Every need we have is met in the person of Christ. He said, learn from me and you will find rest. If we want to walk as Jesus walked, we must see him, hear him daily in the word. So let's recap what we went over tonight. John urges us to live as Christ wanted us to live. First, by knowing Jesus takes away our sins, Second, by keeping the teachings Jesus gave to us. And finally, by walking as Jesus walked by faith. The key to all this is prioritizing his truth in our hearts. Daily drawing from him and not relying on our own efforts, but on the spirit's power. Now perhaps there might be someone out there who's not fully on board with my approach to this passage. And maybe you think John is emphasizing just simple obedience. Obedience, service, works. You might not appreciate my interpretation. I understand. Or maybe you do agree, but you need something more from the Bible. So I want to end with this story that I think really illustrates this point more than anything else. In Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So Mary and Martha were both believers in Jesus. But when Martha invited him into her home, she assumed he expected her to serve him. And she was rushing around trying to get the food and the drinks and everything else that she thought Jesus was expecting from her. But let's be honest, why did Jesus go there in the first place? To be fed? This is the man who turned water into wine, who provided food for thousands of people with just a few loaves. Jesus wasn't concerned with getting a meal from Martha. He went to that house so Martha and Mary and everyone else there could feed from him. Now, it wasn't a sin that Martha wanted to serve the Lord, but she wasn't getting first things first. Mary understood that Jesus wanted to feed them first. Like I said, first things first. We can daily meditate on the reality that Jesus has taken away all our sins. There's no more anger bound up in God's heart against us because Jesus Christ took that punishment for us. We can keep the Lord's commandments by first holding the truth he's put into our hearts. Every day we have such a great privilege to go to the Lord and learn from him. No one else in the world has that privilege. They have YouTube and TikTok. Whoa, that's great. We have the Lord Jesus Christ right here in our midst as we read his word. And we can walk as he walked by faith when we draw from the grace that the Lord is suppri- supplying to us so that we could restfully depend on our Heavenly Father. And through this, through the encouragement of God's word, God's going to protect us from the lies of this world. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to learn from you, to explore your word. I pray that your word will dwell richly in our hearts, that we will learn by your Spirit, by your wonderful abiding grace and presence to follow your commandments, to know just all the wonderful things you have for us. I pray for our church body as they go from here, that they will uh, just be filled with all the grace and goodness that you have for them throughout the coming week. Keep us, preserve us, protect us until we meet once again. In Jesus' name, amen.